Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. Now, Rob, without wanting to preempt your responses, it does seem as though we might have something of a theme on our hands this week, albeit a slightly oblique one, which is around divergence and disparity uh, across quite a range of questions and topics, but they all are linked by this theme that seems to be, uh, is it left or is it right? Uh, There are things pointing in one direction, very powerful things pointing in one direction, and then there are equally powerful things pointing in the opposite direction in a whole um, bunch of places. Uh, So the question this week is, well, uh, which is it and what's the answer? So maybe we can start out Uh, Robert, if you might, on recent economic data telling us, uh, hopefully, uh, about the health of various economies. So what have been the strengths? Yes, so I think the economic data very much has been a story of, uh, as you you mentioned, sort of divergence between different parts of the economy and between different economies. So clearly, on the strength side, it's been part of that sort of unwinding of the COVID bubble or in a way that COVID policy support and then reduction has flowed through the markets and the economies over over the coming years. So really, during COVID, people forced to stay at home, spending on goods was very high, spending on services was very low. And we've seen that unwind and flip over the other way. And that big change, disturbance in in the general order of things um, is why we're seeing a lot of the confused data. So we continue to see manufacturing data looking recessionary across most main economies. So we at CapGen plot PMI data to see, is it been going up and down recently? Are we at a very good or, or bad level at the moment? And it's all in that bottom quadrant of things have been going down and you're at a bad level. Other than some of the weird data Maybe probably Russia would be an example, which is is not we don't really trust the date veracity of that data, or maybe India another example. But more broadly, manufacturing has been pretty weak, and on the strong side, services has been relatively strong. Now there have been some differences between that, but that broadly is the is the big picture. And then in terms of relative regions as well, there's been relatively good data out of the US. So again, the US, if anything, has surprised the upside so far. Certainly the US consumer remains relatively robust. So that's been one one area of strength. And also maybe we could say Japan is surprising a bit to the plus side as well. But then if we look at China and the UK as two examples on the downside, um, China, yes, we had that wave of reopening and the relief and increase in activity, but it does look like consumers in China have been a bit more scarred than the US. There wasn't the big policy support in China compared to 10 years ago. In a way, US and China had sort of reversed positions. 10 years ago, China did all the policy support. This time around, US did a lot more policy support. And China, the consumers seem a bit more scarred by 
um, and and they don't have the the mass of um, savings and the support of the of the state. So in a way, it's not that surprising. But at the margins, data has been a bit worse in China, and certainly UK is another example where inflation's been a bit higher and growth's been a bit lower. So regionally and within the services manufacturing, there have been some of these um, sort of differences that have been appearing. So so services, good in the round. Manufacturing, uh, not so good. US and Japan, good. China and UK, perhaps not so good. So uh, are we going to get this recession, Robert? So we've uh, we've talked about it. Uh, a lot, and there's clearly, if you take the the not doing so well quadrant, if you like, of um, China and UK manufacturing, uh, you can paint a pretty bleak picture, can't you? So, so, but on the other hand, you say US services and uh, uh, a point the other way. So, so, what's the um, what's the conclusion? Well, I I think it, it draws back to what we said before: high likelihood of recession. It was about the timing and magnitude of the recession, and that still remains the case. So. Um, if we take the US, the main economy that people look at, the data there, as we said, has been relatively strong. But if we look at the forward-looking probability of recession in the next 12 months, that remains very elevated. So uh, various uh, indicators people look at, somewhere between 40 and 70%. I think if you look at current data, maybe it's more like 60 to 70%. If you weight it by past history, maybe closer to 40 to 50 But in any case, it's elevated probability of recession. I think the likelihood of recession happening in the US is extremely high. The question is, is it going to be so shallow that the market's already priced it in, which I think remains unlikely. And the important point then is, what does that mean for interest rates? Because at the moment, we're getting that sort of price for perfection. We have this immaculate, really soft recession, and yet rates are expected to fall. So it's hard to envisage that scenario. If we have a very soft, shallow recession, rates are going to be higher for longer, and that has a knock-on impact for the large areas of, of the uh, of the economy. So recession, I think, is likely to happen. Is it a bit later than we anticipated? Maybe later this year or into next year even? I think that's a good chance. But recession's coming. And how hard it is, again, it's, it's a bit circular and it depends on activity and, and response. But I think the reasons for optimism would be to say consumer still remains very strong. Maybe we've seen the worst of some of the behaviour in the housing market. On the downside... I think credit conditions are tightening. And we're certainly seeing that in small business, um, credit confidence and credit surveys. So, And that's still, the effect is still to come. So yes, yield curves, indicators, and manufacturing, lead indicators, are all pointing to recession. It is more about the magnitude. So don't, I think, and that's really to the point of, if we think that the market's already been priced in, we've had our little dip and we're already back to a bull market, it would be highly unusual to for that to happen with a recession that hasn't really even started. The only thing I would add in, because the bit I missed out before, was Europe. And Europe's another good example, sort of caught between the, the crosswinds of the two, really. If we take Germany, the data in Germany looks pretty pretty dire in many areas because they're hit, hit on manufacturing, they're hit uh, from less demand from China. And even if we look at auto sales, again, under the surface a bit, or auto production, sorry, China's suddenly become a major producer of, of automobiles in the last in the last several years so a competitor to, to Germany so I think yes US recession may be in the next year or so growth is already very slow teetering around sort of recessionary levels in Germany and in the UK so I, there will be recession there's high chance of recession across a number of different regions in the next 12 months it used to be the case that when uh, the US sneezed uh, I got a cold everyone else got flu. 
this idea that, you know, the US in so many areas tended to lead. But I think what we're saying now is in, I mean, curiously in a way, because you could argue that the US came most quickly out of the great financial crisis recession compared certainly to um, to Europe, egged on by the stimulatory Chinese government expenditure back then. But is it likely this time that in fact Europe might actually go first, or maybe it was already first, Europe, UK is first? Is it is it plausible to imagine, Robert, that, that Europe and the UK have a recession and the US manages to get away with it? What do you think? I think that's unlikely. I think the chance of a US recession is still very high. It could be a very mild recession. And that, so that's not without the probability. The one thing that has changed at the margins is clearly AI, we don't know all the impacts. It's probably likely that they're going to be really large impacts. Now, we're probably in a hype cycle at the moment, but it's likely to be a technology that leads to improved productivity across a number of different industries, which can enhance growth and reduce inflation, which is actually a very necessary and countervailing force than a lot of the inflationary and lower growth forces that were were present. So that is a development which could improve in the long run. But unfortunately, a lot of the good news is being felt immediately. And it may well take a bit of time for it to play out into economies. We don't really know that range of outcomes. So yes, the range still remains quite wide of of what could happen. So I think it's mild recession is possible. The the immaculate lack of recession completely in the US, I think, is is very low probability at the moment. So I'd still place a lot of emphasis on that, because if we do avoid recession, inflation is still sticky enough that rates will be kept higher than the market is pricing at the moment. And we haven't felt those knock-on impacts. And there's still so much excess debt out there that if rates were to keep going up, which is what would happen if we avoided recession, you'd see quite large impacts in commercial real estate and start seeding the corporate side as and when debt refinancings needed to, needed to occur. So, well, let's let's map uh, the disparities, the regional disparities, onto policy, which uh, possibly, with the exception of China, and to some extent, with the exception of Japan. So, I guess I'm, you know, talking more about the sort of European and North American and uh, Australasian economies. We see central banks follow pretty similar policies. The inflation. Uh, hit most folks at around the same time. And we've seen a, a hiking cycle that's been pretty aggressive in those uh, in those economies and, and reasonably consistent. But we've talked about the disparities and that might lead to disparities in policy. So uh, let, let's maybe look at some of those components. Let's start with the, with the UK. So UK is in a bit of a funk, uh, lots of bad news, particularly about the impact on an economy that has a very large proportion of floating rate mortgages of a very, very significant increase in, in interest rates. But why, why is US, UK inflation so much stickier, or apparently so much stickier, than that in the, the, the US and Europe? So I think if we pull out one of the two main, start with the headline, is the two main reasons are really the labour market and energy prices. I think if, if we were to break down why the UK we're seeing this behaviour in, in inflation. So the first point, um, and oh, oh, sorry, so labour market energy prices. Now, within labour market, if we break down one of the contributing factors, which Mark Carney's highlighted, uh, maybe too much, but clearly Brexit does play an issue. So Brexit, number one, has led to a reduction in migrant workers at the lower end of the wage spectrum. And that's caused um, wages to increase in that segment. So Brexit's clearly had a factor. 
The other factor is COVID, COVID in the labour market, because Britain, like the US, was one of the regions where there was this massive and surprising drop of workers 50 and above that left the labour force since COVID happened. Now, why is that? Again, we don't know exactly, but part of it is directing back from COVID. Secondary factors, sort of long COVID, people not feeling well enough to go back to work, and some not wanting to go back to work um, because of work from home and the the use of sort of fiscal stimulus. So people had a balance sheet that, that could keep them at home for longer. But we haven't seen those workers come back. And that has kept uh, wages in the UK higher than the Eurozone or the US even. So the US, we've seen some of that gap in workers um, age 50 and above, but not to the same extent as, as, as the UK. So clearly on the labour market side, wages have been a big, big force behind it. Energy market is the other. And, and sorry, I should say on wages, that's the big threat. But we have this wage price spiral. And the UK, we've seen some threats um, if, we, if we're looking at what happens in terms of strikes. Um, and also, if we're comparing as well, the, the sort of the survey that the, the, the sort of shortage of labour, um, it's really comparable to the 1970s in the UK. Um, in many of these these segments, which is the last time we had a sort of wage price spiral. So there is that threat from, from Brexit and COVID. On energy prices, it's a little bit more technical. Why is the UK any different to anywhere else? Well, the UK does depend on energy prices to quite a big degree. But the main reason is the, the price setting mechanism. And in the UK, the regulatory mechanism really means it takes a bit longer for energy prices to have an impact. Um, they, they're, they're sort of the cap set. And then it takes longer for prices to fall back. So in the last year, we've seen energy prices in the wholesale markets drop. That hasn't fed its way through into the prices contained in, in CPI. So we would expect just on that factor alone, the UK is going to have this higher peak and it just takes a little bit longer. It took a bit longer for the rates to go up, inflation to go up from energy. It will take a bit longer for the effect to come away. So that's relatively good in that if, where energy prices stay low, that's going to pull inflation back down. I think the wage side is a bit more worrisome. I mean, on the headline as well, the UK, because of Brexit and other factors, has had hit, hits in terms of uh, sort of food prices. That was another one. If we look at the price of breakfast, that was uh, extremely high in the last few months. There have been these, these sort of abnormal um, supply-related issues, but primarily it's to do with labour market and wages. Now, the UK is anyway a relatively high inflation economy. So do we think inflation is going to come all the way back down the UK compared to other regions? Maybe not. But certainly the gap's going to close. And policy rates yeah, policy rates are going to have to respond. So so that is, is that sort of where you're going, Robert, that there is this problem and the UK is a higher inflation economy. Then you've had these sort of shocks from Brexit, from COVID-related uh, change in the workforce, and then, you know, the queued out to the UK energy market, all sort of come together. So, so, so interest rates is going to have to keep going higher. Well, that's it. The, the bias is, and that's what had been started to price in a bit. The U, US maybe could cut rates a bit sooner than the UK and Europe. There did seem to be more of a, there's more of a catch up in Europe, but there's more scope for rates to be to be on a hiking cycle for longer. Now, having said that, the recent policy announcements from the US, this sort of conundrum is we're on a pause, but actually if the economy keeps being so good, maybe we'll be a few more hikes before before it comes. Uh, I think that's the reality. Even in the US, policymakers are going to err on the side of increasing rates until we see unemployment start to rise or until we see financial stress. So to that point about recession earlier, you need to see recession before we're going to start to see rates 
cut in the US anytime soon. And the the, <laughs> the the distinction seems to be between pause and skip, which I think means if you pause, it means so is the Fed pausing, uh, stopping raising rates in order to see what happens, and there's a sort of equally weighted uh, probability thereafter that it might go up or down depending on the de- data, which is sort of how I understand pause. And then skip means they're just having a bit of a break from raising rates for the likelihood is that they are going to put them up again at some point in the future. Are you a pauser or a skipper? Robert? Well, this is it. This is it. It was quite a weird session in a way in that really it, they do want to be data dependent. So let's take that first thing. Second thing is they did have the debt ceiling issue before this meeting. So yes, it was resolved in the end, but they weren't going to raise rates until they knew it was resolved. And then it was too close to the meeting. So that was a bit of the issue. And the third part to it is one of the the new, um, I think it was the vice governor, did a public pronouncement that effectively rates weren't going to be up at this meeting. If that hadn't happened, maybe they well have put rates up, but they didn't want to sort of damage his credibility with the markets because there wasn't time to make another announcement that actually maybe it's a live meeting. So in a way, it became a bit of a weird meeting and it's hard to do this communication. So in a way, what they have communicated it and why it's the language as, as you defined it in really is and why it was a, uh, um, they were trying to signal a hike to come was it was very much to say data strong. If it remains like this, we're going to see more rate hikes. The expectation is more rate hikes before the cycle ends, which is a bit different to sort of pause and it's probably likely we're going to be cutting next. It did definitely see the emphasis as more on a rate uh, rate hike. Having said that, I think the one thing to, to mention was growth or increasing unemployment, which is their way of signaling recession without saying it. They were trying to signal unemployment didn't go up quite so much in the projections, but it's still, I think it was up by about 50 basis points by the end of the year in, in unemployment. And once unemployment goes up that far, it very rarely stops. So I think the Fed is still signaling recession and they're likely to raise rates until recession hits. I think that's one thing to hone in on. The only other thing I'd add, because in divergences, we talk about potential differences in the UK, sorry, Europe and US, but China's already cutting rates. So already with the two big economies in the world, we are already seeing this divergence in policy. China's cutting rates, rates are falling fast, growth looks pretty slow, inflation's coming down fast, US... It looks like the next move is going to be up more than more than down. So already the divergence is happening on a global level. One of the uh, hints, themes, narratives that we are seeing a bit of, which brings together, I suppose, those who believe or want to believe that the uh, Fed has peaked uh, alongside those who have been waiting now for really quite a long time for the Chinese bust. They're sort of coming together and saying, uh, look, Activity in China really hasn't picked up in anything like the way that everyone imagined it would as they move from a COVID zero policy to a slightly more tolerant one. And all of the structural weaknesses that the doomsters have looked for in China for a long while, debt overhang, the way in which their economy is structured, the dependence on debt and residential house building, all of that's run its course, and this is it. And what we should expect now is a sharply slowing China and a sort of disinflationary wage as all this surplus uh, productive capacity that isn't being uh, uh, consumed in China is put back on world markets. And so uh, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on here is high inflation doesn't stay persistently high. It oscillates around a lot. So do you you buy that at all, Robert? Do you think that there could be a, a disinflationary 
wave coming out of China such that these high levels of inflation fall off quite sharply, even if in the future they might then go up again? Well, the headline data is certainly saying that. So headline inflation and PPI inflation in China is going down fast. So short term, in terms of an oscillation, it's happening. I think for it to have a big impact on the rest of the world, this sort of bust scenario, you really need to see a big asset price deflation in China as well. So debt deflation spiral happening in China, which is possible given the run up in debt. But I still don't think it's the most likely scenario. So I think that if we were to sort of look at what could could happen, Chinese growth is slow, but they are starting to act. So there's been some policy moves in terms of cutting rates and and potentially as well, the other positive sign is the um, house uh, house prices and house sales seem to potentially be bottoming. So, and that really would be a good news for for, for China on that side. The bad news is there is does seem to be this scarring in terms of consumer behaviour, and the threat is they yes they do enough policy, but just enough to stave off that really bad scenario you highlighted Ian, but not enough to really generate an impulse of growth. That probably is the most likely scenario at the moment, is a little bit of stimulus, avoid the really bad scenario, but not enough for the rest of the world. And the only other point about the, the, the forces of China is, I think the demographic change in the working age population in China is the big story of the next 100 years. It probably won't hit us immediately now, but that will be more inflationary than deflationary for the rest of the world. So the asset price deflation is a possibility for a deflationary impulse, but actually cheap labour um, and lack of cheap labour coming on from China is quite an inflationary force for the rest of the world. So I'm not sure China on its own, you can be really confident that it's going to unleash um, this big, big wave of either inflation or deflation. So wrapping up a little bit on on that part, I guess what we're picking out is there is some divergence between, for example, what's going on in the UK and the US, but it's not so great as the divergence between what's going on in China and what's going on in other economies where there very clearly is something quite uh, distinctive going on in China at the moment. And we sort of wait to see quite how that plays out. Meanwhile, in, in Western markets, the direction of travel is still more likely to be, we think, I guess, upwards than uh, than downwards. And I think just to, to add to that, what does it mean about portfolios? And we summed up a bit before, is it's a market to be active, not passive. You don't want to just be buying the market, it's the relative value. And to things like, that actually already playing through, we're seeing China against Japan, Japanese equities doing well in a month when J- Chinese equities are going down. So these relative value divergences are quite big at the country, regional level, at the industry level, and at the stock level. Um, so I think that guides a lot of what we're doing is the, the so what of divergence and differences. Actually, it's a bit less macro in a way, and it's a lot more relative value and being active in this type of environment. I wanted quickly to come on to equity markets. So maybe we should just quickly take a little side turn into, into currencies. So we've got, well, what we've got clearly sharply rising rates in the UK, albeit, you know, real rates are still probably not uh, positive. In the US, you've got uh, skipping or pausing, you know, are rates positive or not, probably maybe a little real rates, you know, maybe a little bit uh, bit negative. But then you've got China where you've clearly got both falling inflation and falling rates and and some, you know, possibilities of, of, of economic difficulty ahead. What does, what does that um, do in terms of currency management? Because we talked often on here about you know how in in the medium term it's really difficult to believe that US dominance 
is going to remain at the levels it's been. This is not to sort of forecast the end of the US, just to observe that these things go in cycles and we are you know, very much a cyclical peak in terms of you know, value of the dollar and uh, uh, and uh, US equity market share of global GDP and all these these other things besides. So there you have it. The um, US has enjoyed a strong position, but looks still in pretty good shape. Meanwhile, you know, China's having a, a tough time uh, and Europe's somewhere in the middle. What does that mean for currency management? What would you, what would you do? So if you're a dollar, if you're managing a dollar portfolio, Robert, what's uh, how do you manage for that? So I think there's the long term and the short term with this very much. So medium term, even medium term, medium term, if you're a dollar investor, is think, can I increase if you haven't done already diversification in the rest of the world? So and it's not just in the currency you hold; it's also in the equities. So do you want to just be owning U.S. equities? No. Look for other regions. So if you're a US investor, having some Japanese exposure, some European exposure makes a lot of sense. So diversification outside home currency for a US investor, medium term, is a good idea. Having said that, I think the short term threat remains recession that we talked about already. And in a recessionary environment, um, and even the higher for longer for the, the dollar, if markets have to price in, actually rates are going to be a bit higher and there's better economic growth in in. In the US. So either economy is good for a while and rates are higher, or we then see the uh, uh, recessionary impulse coming and rates get cut, but it's search for the safe haven. Either of those scenarios, you could see a bit of a bid for the dollar. So short term, there may be a bit of this counter trend move up in the dollar. Um, so that's why I, I wouldn't make all my bet on that medium term dollar weakness. That's really a story for the next cycle. When we really start a new economic cycle and there's new growth, actually, that's could be for, for dollar weakness. Um, and really, the dollar is one of the assets alongside interest rates where we're still range trading. So we talked about this range trading since um, really the summer of last year. Now, one market or a couple of markets look like they you may be breaking out of the range. The exuberance in AI has pulled up the US stock market. So actually, we're breaking upwards and it looks a bit like there's a, there's a bit of momentum there. Maybe it's broadening out more to other sectors than just AI in the last month. So June, the last few weeks, is questioning whether we're going to see a bit more of that um, late cycle rally that we talked about. Growth's a bit better, enthusiasm for AI and equities go to extremely elevated values. That scenario looks like it may be playing out. So that's that's equities are like that. But actually, currencies and interest rates are not. We're still sort of within that range. So I think that's where the economic data is really going to determine whether we see recession coming, rates falling, and dollar going up, or higher for longer, it looks a bit stronger, which may still get some support for the dollar. But I think that's what we need to see is more the, the economy is going to determine the short term currency moves. But that's very much the, 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 the way to think about it is those medium term moves as we go into the next cycle, definitely underweight the dollar. And even now you can be diversifying your if you're a US investor to the rest of the world. Um, but short term, Beware the tail of a bad economic data. It leads to a bit of um, uh, US dollar strength. We haven't seen the last of the US dollar strength, I don't think. You touched a bit there on on equities, and I, I, <laughs> it just keeps on going. So the momentum that we've seen, you know, maybe since uh, uh, Q4 ish last year, continuing to this year in, well, a narrower group of stocks in the whole market, or that might have broadened out a bit. But but this this momentum rally in equities or in some equities, particularly in the US, just continues despite what's been going on with interest rates and despite the possibility of 
problems ahead, the beginnings, as you mentioned, of cracks in credit markets. And and I know we talk a lot about that here. Has your view evolved at all, Robert? Do you still think this is, you know, whilst it might go a very long way still, it's ultimately unsustainable? Um, yes. I, the short answer, recession will come at some point. Whether it's a more mild recession this year, we'll still have a downturn in earnings and still have a downturn in equities. Or it's delayed a bit longer, we get to an extreme bubble, and then it's a really nasty recession. I think both ways, there's more downside to equities to come. It's a matter of when. But short term, there is positive momentum now uh, in the US, and there aren't the catalysts to, to stop in the way. And narrow market looks unhealthy. I think that's the technical part is it's just a few stocks holding everything up that really is when usually a bull market's on its last legs and you should really be wary and we should say if you outside those seven names in the us until the last three weeks basically it was flat for the year so it wasn't a big market now and this is the reason why with our portfolios we've been underweight maybe a bit of the the large cap names but actually why we still hold equities and don't just have everything in cash is if we do broaden out and we do have this big uh, late cycle, more broader bull market, having equities, you do need to to get you some of the growth. So June would be a much better return for most portfolios as the, the, it broadens out who's who's doing well. But having said that, I mean, I would just, just say the US market, which could well hit its record highs again in the next few weeks, if you're hitting the record highs before recessions happened, with a huge amount of debt and interest rates still pretty high, and we haven't really felt the impact of that, it is a bit of a precarious situation to be in. So at the same time, this is the markets having that sort of dichotomy between, which I think Stanley Druckenmiller really em- emphasizes that, which the market's chasing the AI bubble, doing the George Soros and running where there's going to be growth, and there will be uh, potential, albeit some of the names are getting up to crazy levels. And even when you see more broadly those large cap names trading like the nifty 50, 30, high 30s, high 40s PE, that's an expensive market. You're expecting low future returns. On the one hand, you've got that bubble chasing. And on the other hand, there is still some nervousness and and, um, sort of bearish attitude towards what could happen um, in that scenario. And bond markets, equity markets, we haven't got to the bottom of that yet. So as we said, when you see rates break out one way con- conclusively, that will sort of be, and maybe the equity markets will force it. Either growth will be so good that rates have to go higher and that provokes trouble, or actually the recession wins out in the end and and we do see some tightening of credit. So although the equity markets are pretty buoyant and there are, there are reasons for hope um, and could well be this bull market um, for lasts a bit longer, I think the bond market and that credit tightening we haven't felt those full full impacts yet, so it's a bit. I think it's far too early to be jumping all in and thinking we're on the, the start of a really long bull market to come. It is that dichotomy, I guess, that's at the heart of where we are and why you know investing right now is really tricky because you can see uh, the economic weakening, leveling off uh, in, in 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 many areas. Interest rates have just gone a whole bunch higher, and even if they are. You know, the irony, of course, is even if they're negative at the moment, in real terms, if inflation does fall, which is what people wish for, they become sharply real and therefore, you know, very, very painful to meet. Yet at the same time, you see equity markets or US, some US stocks anyway, doing very, very well. So it is, I think, very, very tough to be 
an investor at the moment. And it comes back, I think, Robert, to all the things that we've talked about now over over years, which is about, well, knowing yourself, knowing what your long-term objectives are, being patient, being disciplined, being calm, and at this moment in time, just being active and having a clear view of what you should own and what you shouldn't shouldn't own, uh, which is very much what we're what we're trying to do in our portfolios. So it's when you've got this divergence that life for investors is very tough, and explaining to to clients uh, what's happening is is demanding because there are these very very divergent and confusing messages. But that's what we are trying to do to disentangle that signal from noise. Uh, and on that note, um, thank you very much for joining us and hopefully see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye.